We are in a series looking at the book of Acts. This is the story of the explosion of the early church. And we're looking at Acts chapter 17. And we're looking at a man called Paul and a, an address that he gives in the middle of Athens. Let me just introduce the scene, set it for you, and then we'll read the passage. So Paul is a man who is of a deep religious background. He's a Jewish man. He's trained under Gamaliel, a famous Jewish rabbi. So he was steeped in the Jewish religion. And in fact, he was one of the early opponents of the Christian movement. He was there as one of the early Christians was stoned to death for their faith by the Jewish community in Jerusalem. He was participating and supporting that act. And then fast forward to Acts chapter 9. He has a moment of encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. That's where you hear the phrase Damascene conversion. If you've, never heard, if you've heard that before and wonder where that comes from. He has this moment of encounter with Christ where he is confronted and he realizes the error of his ways. And so his whole life shifts. And so then we see through the book of Acts, really, he makes it his mission to go from city to city with a band of other Christians preaching about Jesus Christ. Remember what they are preaching, at the essence of what they're preaching, you'll hear about this in this passage, they are preaching that this man, Jesus Christ, was no mere teacher. They are preaching that he was God in the flesh, that he was crucified, and then three days later, he was resurrected. This unlikely tale takes hold of hearts in all sorts of cities, and churches are established. And we have Paul now coming to Athens on his second missionary journey. And Athens is a profound kind of city focused around wisdom. It's named after Athene, Athene, the, god, Athene the goddess of wisdom. It's the place where Aristotle and Plato and Socrates all spent time. It is a place known for learning and wisdom. And Paul finds himself at the Areopagus, which is the kind of civic council so a bunch of old men, basically, in a, uh, and, they are, and they are there, and they, they have the kind of responsibility to determine something of the civic and religious life in the community. And so you can understand why they're intrigued by what Paul is saying, because he's presenting some new religious ideas. So he is there at this famed seat of learning, just beneath the Acropolis, where you have the Parthenon. You may have seen the kind of Greek, uh, temple with the, the columns, the image that some of you will think know when you think of Athens. He's just there, basically. And in, that, in the midst of that, they are kind of putting his ideas on trial. They kind of, they've brought him there. They'll say, tell us what, these, what this teaching is. But almost rather than putting their, his ideas on trial, he puts them on trial. And he confronts their idolatry. What we're going to see is a profound confrontation of the idea of idolatry or false worship. And I took great profit as I read through and, and prepared this message. I trust it will do the same for you as we read it. So let me read to you but chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. He's offended. As he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, some of the kind of philosophies of the day. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, 
saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This profound context of learning and new ideas, they're they're drawn to the new ideas that Paul is sharing with them. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the faces of all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then he goes on to quote a couple of their their thinkers. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Essentially, we come from God. He made us. Not literally, but you know, the, not literally offspring, but He made us. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus Christ. But now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let me pray. Lord, we want to come to you now and ask that you come and speak to us. I want to pray for everyone who's in this room, whether they're coming from far away from you or near. I want to pray that they would hear your word for them this morning. I pray that you would reveal to us your majesty and your glory. I pray that you'd help us to take off the vain idols that so easily attach themselves to our hearts. And pray you would point us to become people who worship you sincerely and deeply from the heart. Amen. So, today, Paul is confronting our idolatry. And you see that right at the beginning of this passage, this is the theme that kind of runs through all the way through. He starts in verse 16. He is provoked by the idols that he sees. He's distressed. He's offended. The language he uses when he talks about full of idols, it it could also be described as like a, a forest of idols. And what are we talking about here? Well, think about Athens. Every street corner you would have seen shrines and statues and temples named and given to the different gods of the Greek pantheon. Uh, The Greek writer Petronius said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. 
basically saying there were so many statues and shrines and religious artifacts to the different Greek gods, they just kind of flooded the city. You could see them everywhere you went. He's observed the objects of worship. That's how he says in 20, verse 23. He's kind of gone round and seen all these different objects of worship. In fact, even from this moment, as he addresses the Areopagus, he is on the hill of Ares, otherwise known as the god of war, Mars Hill. You may have heard of it described. He's, he's preaching to them from a, a, a place dedicated to the god of war. Overlooking him as he's speaking to them, he the, has the Acropolis overlooking them with the Pantheon, which is another temple given over to the worship of Athene, the supposed god of wisdom. So just overlooking him is that another idol. And anyone got any Nike trainers on this morning? We also have the temple to Nike, the god of victory within eyesight of him as he's preaching. Don't worry, you haven't committed idolatry by, <laughs> by wearing those trainers. My, my point is simply, he, he, even as he speaks to them, the gods are all around him. <laughs> he can see the objects of worship. And he is offended by this. He's saying, no, you're missing the point. He's saying, you heard him, told them they were very religious in verse 22. That's how he begins. Men of Athens, I can see you are very, I perceive in every way, you are very religious. Uh, it's kind of not really a compliment. <laughs> It might sound like that to you because you think, well, he's a religious man. Surely he's complimenting them. But I think what he's saying is, in a sense, you are misguided. You have perhaps some sort of zeal to know God. You, you're so religious, you've got a tomb to the unknown God. It's like they're covering all bases. Maybe there's a God we haven't heard about, so we're going to have a tomb dedicated to the one who we don't know. So in one sense, he's saying, look, okay, you can see your religiosity. But really, I think he's challenging their religiosity. He said, you are misguided. So to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So you have all this religiosity, but you are ignorant. You do not know the God who made you. The reason why he is wanting to confront this idolatry is because in a sense he's saying, you're worshiping all these pale imitations of the living God. This is the basis for his declaration, the center of this passage, verse 24, 25. He said, don't worship these these vain idols, these stone statues, it says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to man, all mankind life and breath and everything. Saying these, these idols, they're just pale imitations of the real thing. This is a declaration of the, of the majesty the glory and the grandeur of the living God who made everything, who gave you the breath in your lungs. In fact, he goes on and says, he made you. Why? Why did he make you? What is the reason for your existence? That you might find him. So that you might seek and find him. That you might know him. That you might be in relationship with him. That he made you to worship him. To enjoy him. To be in relationship with him. But this is not just Athens. See, I think as you hear this challenge, some of you will think, well, obviously this doesn't apply to me because I don't worship any stone idols. <laughs> Whether you're a Christian, you say, well, no, I worship Jesus Christ. So in a sense, I've, I've moved past this. Or you're not a Christian, you say, well, no, I, I don't worship anything. I'm a, I'm a secular person. I'm, I'm my own person, so to speak. I don't need to worship any kind of God. What you need to hear is the magnitude of the challenge that Paul is making to all of us here. He's saying, smash the idols of your life, unless you have made the living God the central 
object of your affection and your worship. You are missing the central purpose of your life. You are made to worship God. You are made to make him the most valuable reality at the center of your lives, the source of meaning and satisfaction and joy. You are made to worship the living God, but instead you have built your lives around many gods who are no gods at all. And what I want you to see is the link between Athens and us. Say so the gods you worship don't have these kind of fancy Greek names like Nike or Aphrodite or Artemis. But we've built our lives around lesser things. Our, the pursuit of our career, the desire for wealth, the quest for love. Some of those very good things. But they were never meant to be ultimate. Good things that were never meant to be ultimate and cannot take the place of God in your life. To understand this passage rightly, you need to imagine Paul standing at the middle of Trafalgar Square. And as he looks on into London, he can see this same idolatry going on in the hearts of Londoners everywhere. Just down the road from Trafalgar Square, Parliament. A whole bunch of people. I'm not saying every politician is true, this is true of, but many in that context working in politics would have made the pursuit of power and glory the kind of abiding goal of their life. They may not call it that, but they are worshipping power. And they're willing to give up all sorts of things, to make all sorts of sacrifices, just like you might make a sacrifice in a temple, to make all sorts of sacrifices to the pursuit of that goal, that thing that they are living for. They worship power. Or perhaps just near Trafalgar Square, you can imagine Leicester Square and Soho and all the bright lights of London. And in that, there'll be those around there who are pursuing kind of hedonistic pleasure, pursuing hedonistic pleasure and sexual delight. And in that, there'll be some of those who have made that their goal in life, made that the, the, the defining or ultimate source of joy and satisfaction in their lives. And in doing so, they have become to worship that. One of the folk getting baptized will, will tell us a little bit about that, that in their lives. Or think about just near Trafalgar Square, you've got the city, the city of London. And you'll have some in that context, not saying again this is true of everyone there, but some who have given their whole lives over to the pursuit of the accumulation of wealth. Who long for and live for the, the, the size of their financial pay packet. And that is the defining and ultimate goal of their lives. They're not just earning a living but money has become their God. Paul would challenge the idolatry all around us in our city. But it's not just for those who are not Christians here who would hear this challenge. Also, if you're a Christian, because it's very easy to kind of pay lip service to the idea of worshiping God and say the right things and sing the right things on a Sunday, but, but actually in your heart to allow all sorts of idols to grow up. One writer put it like this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. As a Christian, as someone who worships God, you may want to ask yourself, are there things that I've allowed to become more important to me than God? Created things, lesser things. He goes on, he says, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination. What are the things that absorb your heart and your imagination? Or anything you seek to give you, only what God can give. What are the things you look for when you feel anxious? What are the things you look to when you feel anxious? Where, where will you run when you are stressed out and life feels really difficult? He says, actually, maybe you've made a mini-god out of that thing. 
Actually, it's replaced the role of God in your life, the one you are meant to run to when you are anxious. So the question this forces us to ask then is, what will you worship? That is the question that Paul is provoking us to consider. What will be the center of your life? The living God who put breath in your lungs or some kind of lesser created thing? I want you to hear Paul's challenge to us. I want you to see the reality of idolatry in our hearts, to see this in ourselves and identify our idols, to hear his call to see the supremacy of God, to see how much better that God is than these idols, and to hear the nearness of Christ, to hear that in all our vain idolatry and our willingness to run after the wrong things, Christ is coming to meet us, even in our foolishness. So first of all then, the reality of idolatry. Dig beneath the surface of your life, and I think you'll quickly recognize the reality of idolatry, that we look very similar to the Greeks here. And this is bad news because our idols will fail us. They cannot bear the weight of our worship. You heard Paul say in verse 23, you are very religious. And it's kind of obvious from the built environment and the shrines and the statues, or the money that they spend at the temples. But actually, it's obvious even when you look at your own life, from your actions, what are the things that you worship? Think about this, I mentioned that, that he's doing this near the temple of Nike, of Nike the god, goddess of victory. Why would you go to the goddess of victory? Why would you go and seek a priestly blessing or, a, or, or make a, a, a donation to the god of, of Nike, of god of victory? Because you desired victory. Maybe it was a, you're going to battle or you're starting a business or somewhere you said, I must have success. Isn't that the same as what's going on in our culture? The same ambition, the same longing for success. There are many who ultimately the pursuit of success and achievement, perhaps of recognition from others, becomes the driving ambition of their lives. They pulse, those who almost pulsate with a sense of ambition. They work all hours and sacrifice everything. They might not call it Nike or Nike, whatever you say, but it's the same God, victory and success. Or think about Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the God of beauty and of love. Again, why would you go to the temple of Aphrodite? Why would you pray for a priestly blessing? Because you want love. You want beauty, perhaps, so that you might have love. That's what they're doing. Isn't that the same today in our culture? That there are folks who would spend thousands of pounds on beauty treatments and perhaps have all sorts of different struggles with their mental health and eating disorders in the pursuit of that same beauty and perhaps the love that they associate with that beauty. They may not call it Aphrodite, but they still worship and long for the beauty that she represented, for the love that she was manifesting, was representing. What, you're saying, what you need to see is these temples were like a, a physical manifestation of their deepest longings. They were a physical manifestation of what they worshipped. If you need any convincing of this reality, only on Friday did Wes Streeting, the um, shadow health secretary, talk about the NHS, and he said it's, a shri- it's not a shrine, it's a service. And what he was speaking about was the idea that there are those who treat the NHS like a national religion in this country. You may have heard people talk about it like that. And what he's saying is, essentially, we kind of idolize the NHS. It becomes a kind of creation of our, of our minds. We, we kind of, we're really fiercely wanting it to be protected and funded and all those kind of things. Really, why? why? Because it's a manifestation of our desires. We have an idol of health. We long for good health. We, 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 that is a high priority. The kind of, for some of us, it's the abiding desire of our lives to why we do clean eating and diets and fitness regimes and all sorts of things. It's kind of an obsession for some. And out of that kind of collective 
desire ultimately for health and for a fear of death. It becomes a kind of object of worship, is what this guy was saying. These temples, they're Aphrodite, the god of love, or Bacchus, the god of pleasure, or Artemis, the god of financial gain. The location of our worship may have changed, but the same desires dominate our culture and everything we do. This idolatry is normal. We see it all the time. How can you tell what you worship? How can you tell what your idols are? Well, the word worship could also be described as worth Skype. That's how it originated, the etymology originally. And what it means is to, to, make some, to say something of worth and of value, to make something of a kind of ultimate meaning in your life. When you worship something, you're saying, this is what I value. So you have to ask yourself, what do I consider to be valuable? What is the thing that gives my life meaning? Everybody here, whether you're, whatever religion you have or whatever beliefs you have, has a kind of ultimate source of meaning. Every, everybody has a kind of reason for their existence. And that ultimately is what you worship. This is how uh, one writer put it. Human life is simply too hard and too miraculous to lack a purpose. We need something to make sense of the fact that we are, are alive and to justify that life. Unlike animals who can survive by instinct, humans have the capacity to question our own existence, to ask why we should live and why we should put up with suffering. Mere survival isn't enough. Living for the sake of living and having children doesn't cut it for most people. And so we adopt visions of the good life to work toward, reasons to live, and ways to make sense of our life stories. Ask yourself, what is the reason that I live? What is the thing that I consider to give ultimate meaning to my life? What is the kind of North Star, the thing that I'm running towards? That is what you worship. What is the one thing that I say, if I didn't have that, it would make life intolerable? I remember talking to one young woman who was absolutely kind of obsessed with the idea of being in a relationship. She was desperate. In fact, I think many of us would feel this, but she was much more honest about this. And she would just say, like, if I can't have this, my life will be over. What is the thing that you say to yourself? If I can't have this, my life will be over. You can tell you what you worship by what you dream about, what you daydream about, what your mind goes back to when you're in a kind of point of inactivity, when you're not really doing anything. Where does your mind go to? What do you focus on? What do you daydream about? Do you spend months in advance of your bonus trying to, before it's announced, trying to, like, thinking about the, the size of it and what, and what it will be? Does that become a kind of obsession to you? You can also see your, what, you, what you idolize by your nightmares, what you fear, what keeps you up at night. Idols aren't necessarily good things in your life. Say you're the kind of person who stays up all night worrying about what people think of you, worrying about what you said or what that person's going to think of you when you do X. If you find yourself consumed by the fear of what people think of you, it's, it's very likely you've made an idol, that you've come to worship the opinions of others. It may not feel very good, and I think that's often how idolatry feels. And the problem is what you worship will be your master. What you worship will control you. If you genuinely worship God, not just paying lip service to it, but if you actually believe that God is good, that his love is better than life, when you, and you're captivated by a vision of who he is, the natural thing is you want to obey him. If you don't uh, feel like obeying him, you have to ask yourself, do I really love him? Do I really want to worship him? Do I really genuinely worship him? But if you do worship him, if, you do, if you're captivated by Christ, 
If you see his majesty and his moral glory and say, I, I can only but bow, then you will do what he says. What you worship will control you. But this also works the other way around. If you worship something else, it will end up shaping and controlling your life. The writer Becky Pippett said, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people she wants to please. We do not control ourselves, but are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And the Bible makes a really fascinating claim here, that everybody is a slave to something. Everybody is a slave to something. In Romans chapter 6, Paul puts it, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Saying everybody, everybody will serve something. You will either serve your desires, those longings, those idolatrous worship affections in your heart, or you will worship the living God. And the question is, what do you want to be a slave to? Do you want to be a slave to your desires, which feels so intuitively attractive, of course I want to do what I want to do, but we all know our desires don't lead to flourishing, that we are our own worst enemies, that we find ourselves working too hard, not because someone made us work too hard, but because our own hearts led us there. We desired the success or the material gain or whatever it is, and so we, we, we kind of worked ourselves to the bone and hurt ourselves in the process. Or you drink to excess and you think, well, I know, I just kind of made a few bad decisions, that's possible, but maybe you drank to excess because you wanted to, because you were trying to get away from the fear and the anxiety in your heart, and so you turned to alcohol to kind of numb the pain, to turn away from the fears. The Bible makes a an incredible claim that as you come to Christ and turn over the lordship of your life, you are set free from sin. It means that, that you are no longer controlled by the desires that once uh, kind of dominated your life, but as Christ comes over and takes lordship of your life, you experience a freedom no longer to turn to those same desires that you know weren't good for you. And we as Christians live in the midst of that, struggling and fighting to find freedom, but ultimately finding it because we have Christ in us by the hope of glory and the Holy Spirit at work in us. So do you want to be controlled by these petty idols, the approval of others, the longing for success, the desire for wealth, or do you want to be controlled by the Lord who loves you? That is the question this would force you to ask. Who do you want to be the master of your life? Because your idols will fail you. The very thing that you worship and long for will always feel beyond reach. There's a tragic irony that the thing that you worship will never feel like you have it. That's how one writer puts it. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. You may not even realize you're doing them, but you start to look at your life. You say, I know I worship Christ, but I see a longing for this that is actually harming me, that is destroying me in some way. 
See, these idols, remember, they're, they're sometimes very good things, but they're inherently insecure. Let me give you one idol that I think is really, da- really obvious, really easy, the welfare and happiness of your children. If you're a parent, it's absolutely right that you care about the welfare and happiness of your children. But if you allow that to be the only orientation of your life, the the driving north star that you push towards, it will destroy you. Because there will be moments when your children aren't happy. There'll be moments when they suffer. And if that has become the ultimate goal of your life, you'll be destroyed in the process. Actually, you live under a living God. You trust him for his care. You worship him. And you seek the welfare of your children. not saying you go against that. But it doesn't become the driving ultimate force of your life. Or if you're someone, think about the insecurity of some of these idols. Think about health. Those who are obsessed by their own health as a kind of ultimate goal of their life, pursue fitness regimes and diets and the perfect body. But that's an, that's an inherently insecure goal. Most anyone over the age of about 18 or 20, their, their body's already declining. <laughs> sorry to tell you. <laughs> that, that death, and worse still, sorry, it gets worse. <laughs> and that death looms large. <laughs> It's like you're worshipping this thing that ultimately will just be like sand that goes through your fingers. It won't retain. It will fail you. And when you experience the failure of your idols, you will be crushed. I think about success. It's a good thing to want to be good at what you do. That's a worthy goal. But if you make it an idol, when you experience failure, you will be crushed. I was speaking to one um, very successful young woman who is kind of a grade A achiever all the way through her life with a high achieving. And, um, and when uh, an, a colleague wrote an email criticizing her to uh, some of the senior execs in her company, it would have been hard for anyone. But for her, I think it was almost unbearable. Because if success is your God, then as you experience a moment of failure, then your, your, your identity is broken. The very thing that you're living for has been destroyed. Your reputation, your future, it feels in smithereens in that moment. It's very vulnerable to worship these idols because they will fail you. Many of our idols are good things, our career, our relationships, love, sexual pleasure. They're gifts from God, but they cannot be God. They cannot be worshipped. So what will, what will rid us of this false worship then? And this brings us to Paul's second part of his argument, the supremacy of God. Paul's argument is fundamentally that the idols that they worship are nothing compared to the living God who they were made to worship. He's more satisfying, more secure, and uniquely worthy of your worship. Hear the argument that Paul makes. So here is the God who made everything, who put the breath in your lungs, who's the source of all life. He looms large over any of these vain idols that you might be tempted to worship these inert, lifeless objects, or even these gods of your imagination, he describes them as ones that we've just made up in our heads. How do we see his supremacy of God? Let me give you two ways. One is that God tastes better than your idols. You see, you've got to remember, idolatry is a God replacement. We chase after these things without realizing that God was always intended to satisfy the longings that stand behind this false worship. We pursue these things because they give us a sense of meaning and purpose. But we forget that to live under the hand of the one who made you is inherently to have a meaning and purpose from him. You're not just a random clump of cells, but as you come under the living God, he has a purpose for your life. He has given you purposes, both in the kind of the wider world and the purpose to worship him and enjoy him. 
hear the dignity that comes from knowing that you are made by a one, by, made by the living God. We pursue these things because they give us a sense of satisfaction. And, and, and you know, you think about kind of sexual pleasure and hedonism. But what we miss is that Christianity is not anti-satisfaction, but rather it says we've been looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. Psalm 16 says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In a sense, what he's saying is you are seeking temporary highs in this world, which are nothing compared to the lasting contentment found in relationship with the living God. The transitory highs, the dopamine hits, are nothing compared to knowing the love that is better than life. Knowing the security that comes from living under the, the living God who is sovereign and in control of your life. Knowing the comfort that comes from running to him and knowing the security, the sense to which he always once invites you back in. However foolish you've been, he draws you back to himself. Knowing his love, knowing his sovereign control, knowing the security of being called his child, that security, that, so that, that sense of peace that comes with knowing his control, that it speaks far better than the transitory highs of a hedonistic life without God. Or love, love and a sense of value. I think often we pursue these idols because they tell us we're valuable, because in the human heart there is a deep longing for love, that's why people will give themselves away to all sorts of people because there's a desire to feel wanted. We say, no, we found a love that is better than life. I remember talking, I told you about that young woman who was deeply focused on the idea of being in a relationship. And I just remember saying to her, like, I know men, I am one. <laughs> I don't think they're really all that they're cracked up to be. And certainly not in the way that you think, like you're looking to this man who'll be the answer to your deepest longings and will say, You've, you've satisfied my soul. I'm sorry, I'm one of them. I don't think any of them will match up to that standard. <laughs> All the women nodding along <laughs> in this moment. <laughs> Instead, we've found a love that is better than life. We've found a, a, a father who continues to draw us in and call us his children despite our failings. Why would we go and pursue all these lesser things when we have a love that is better than life? I think about Augustine, a man writing in the 300s, from, um, originally from North Africa. He's a man who, who kind of did it all, pursued all the idols. He was a man who lived in debauchery, pursued relationships. Um, so he famously said, Lord, give me chastity, but not just yet. I basically, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, maybe I'm drawn towards you, but I'm, right now I want to carry on doing what I'm doing. Um, and, he, and he pursues success and status and becomes this kind of great uh, tutor of rhetoric in, in northern Italy. And then he comes to Christ. <laughs> And he experiences a satisfaction which is so much greater than all the things he pursued. And he came up with this line in his, in his book called The Confessions, which thousands of people since then have related to. He, said, he says to God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Your heart will always be restless as you pursue these vain idols. Come and find your rest in the living God. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says, God is uniquely worthy of your worship. You must hear Paul's offense in this passage. His blood is kind of boiling as he sees it. He's provoked by their idolatry. Why? Because he has a genuine zeal for the worship of the living God, for the name and reputation of the God who made everything. And what you need to see is that he is offended on behalf of the living God as he says, how can you worship these vain idols? 
How can you worship these insignificant gods of your imagination? You are made to worship the one who made you, who put the breath in your lungs, who gave you life and everything. See something of the offense that you would ignore him, that you would build your life around anything else. He made you. He gave you life. What a kind of spit in the eyes of God that you would kind of just spend your life ignoring him when he is the reason you exist. There's a profound irony with your idolatry. As you think about the idea that he's the creator, just dwell on his creative majesty, that this is the living God who made the stars in the sky. I was reading about one, the largest star. My son's a little bit obsessed with kind of astronomy and stars and things like that. So the largest star, UI Scooty, I don't know how to say it, it's large enough that five billion suns could fit inside it. Five billion suns could fit inside this star, and the sun is so large, our sun is so large, that 1.3 million Earths would, would um, fit inside it. That is the scale of our creative majesty, the one who made it all, that he made such incredible grandeur. And yet the Bible also says he knows when one sparrow falls to the ground and knows the number of hairs in your head. The God who made that huge star that is unfathomable to us, also knows the number of hairs on your head. What an incredible reality that God would make the, heaven and the, world, the heavens and the earth. And yet, be interested in you, individually. Made you to seek and find him, that you might be in relationship with him. What an incredible paradox. How could you ignore him? There's something of a kind of offense here as a reminder of judgment that one day every knee will bow and Christ is commanding you to turn from these vain idols. Say they will not satisfy you and in fact you are missing the whole point of your life. Come and worship the living God. We are hearing God's jealousy here. His longing for his bride that says you are mine. You are made for me. I love you. The love inside that. The love that says I want your heart. I made you for myself. Don't pursue these vain idols. Like a lover calling out to his adulterous bride, saying, turn from these other lovers and come back to me. That is what we're seeing when we see the baptism today. We're seeing those who have dethroned their idols, who've said, no, I'm, I want to worship Christ. I've surrendered to him. This is the way into the Christian life. In 1 Thessalonians, the believers are those who turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So it's the way in, those who've turned away and said, I want to worship Christ. But it's also the ongoing call in the Christian life to dethrone your idols. And how do we dethrone our idols? Well, we trash them, we see how empty they are, but we also ultimately, the real ultimate antidote to idolatry is worship. The more you enjoy God, the more you remember his promises, remember his grace, celebrate his faithfulness, that is the way as you grow your genuine affection for God, your desire for him, That is the ultimate antidote to idolatry. So as we close, hear the hope here. Hear the invitation. Christ is near. You see how you heard it in this passage? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. Now in one sense, it's a speaking of the fact that God has revealed himself. That Christ has come into the world, that there needs to be no more uncertainty about who the living God is. It's a bit like, you know, these Athenian philosophers have been speculating for hundreds of years and trying to work out God. And he says, no, God has shown himself. He is near to us. There's no more uncertainty 
We can say with the disciples, we've touched God, we've seen him. As God has entered into our world, there need to be no more uncertainty about who God is. And we could spend a whole another 40 minutes talking about that. We won't. Glad to know. You'll be glad to know. But it also speaks how Christ is near to us in our foolishness. That as we go fumbling around and worshipping all these vain idols, the living God draws near to us. says, you are mine. <laughs> Come back to me. Isn't that incredible? The mercy that we don't deserve. He's come pursuing us in our mess. He's come pursuing the Athenians in all their uh, highfalutin philosophy, but it's led to naught, led to nothing. He says, no, come to me. All these statues that proliferate through their city, you've, you've made a mess of your life. <laughs> you made a mess of your civilization. You missed the point completely, but come to me. That is what the living God's invitation is to you today. If you're not a Christian, hear his invitation to say, I want you. Come and meet the one who made you. Come and worship me and enjoy me and find the satisfaction that you were longing for. Come and turn around from your old life and turn to me. That is what it means to repent. But if you're a Christian, hear that same invitation to put away these false idols, these vain things. The picture I have is a kind of a child playing with playthings in the mud and the living God is like a father coming to him and saying, just, just put them down. Just come to me. Come to me. Receive my love. Come to me. Don't have eyes for any other lovers. If you change the analogy. Come to me. Receive my love. Come to me. Be those who are wholehearted in their affections for me. Some of you are Christians in, in name only. Or Christians with major love affairs for the world. And Christ would say, just leave them aside. Don't, do enjoy my gifts. Enjoy the good gifts that I've placed into your life but do not worship them. Do not allow them to be the masters of your life. So lay them down. Lay down your idols. That is Christ's invitation today. Come and receive Christ's grace.